Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us here this evening. It is Sunday, May 2nd, and this is the final podcast in this particular series of primetime podcasts. It's been a long series since the first of the year, and it's been titled, Why We Believe What We Believe. Now, one of the reasons why we started on this is because not only me, but many of my fellow pastors, both Baptists as well as people in other denominations, have really noticed that something that has changed in the last 20 years is people just don't understand the why, the how and the why. And I mean, sometimes some of these are questions we can't fully know, obviously. But at the same time, people don't have a hunger to want to understand these things. They almost have come to the point where they wanted to say, all right, well, do I know enough in order to be saved? Okay, am I saved? Am I good to go? All right, great, leave me alone. <laughs> and I, I know that that isn't the intention, but if that's how it functions, the problem with that is that someone like that, well, they are truly saved if they truly believe. They rarely are well-equipped in order to help somebody else come to a saving faith. Obviously, we do know that it's the Holy Spirit that calls and that it is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings us to repentance and to a desire to then call out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me. I admit I'm a sinner. I know that I'm lost without you. All of those things that are part of the things that we sometimes call making a decision for Christ, but we very often don't think very clearly, and I would suggest not very accurately, about what has happened before we can ever, quote, make a decision for Christ, because it really is all about God and it isn't about us. We're not going to make a choice to follow Christ unless something has first acted on us. We're not going to do that any more than a person who has died is going to suddenly decide to be alive again. The only time that's going to happen is one day at the resurrection. And that's because the Holy Spirit is going to act upon that dead body. But our lost soul, we don't call out in response to say, Lord, save me, until the Holy Spirit has already worked on us. Now, you've heard me talk about that a fair amount. And I think most of us get that. We say, okay, well, yes, you're right. We'd have a tendency to place too much of that on us. And we tend to make it too much about us. But that is at the core of this debate about did God choose us or did we choose God? And those are the two different views you've heard me talk about before that are more of the Reformed view and the Armenian view. Both of them have many, many saved born-again people within those views. So let's look at it kind of in a different direction now. Let's look at this issue not so much as Reformed and Arminian. Let's look at it more specifically through, um, it would be almost as if that's looking at it horizontally. Let's look at it vertically. If you were looking at, at an object in its physical dimensions. Let's look at it through two dif different lenses tonight. And that is what we would call the covenant view and the dispensational view. You might say, there you go again, Jim. You know, there's Ronald Reagan again. Well, there you go again. <laughs> but the idea is we look at things through different lenses. And when we do that, we're going to color what the Bible really says. 
Both of those views, covenant view and dispensational view, are the attempts, the honest, sincere attempts of theologians and pastors and teachers over the years to try and explain how the Holy Spirit works in calling us to faith. How does it function? How did we get there? Praise God that we got there, that we became born-again believers. And for some people, they're perfectly happy with that. But I've tried to encourage all of us to say, that's wonderful. Now I want to learn more. I want to dig deeper. Not to wander down some back alleys that take us nowhere, because the, the old viewpoint that says it might cause confusion, well, it'll cause confusion if you wander down a back alley that just isn't going to lead anywhere. But it isn't going to cause confusion, ultimately, if we're really focused on saying, Lord, teach me. Lord, show me where my understanding is thin so that I am better equipped and better able to serve you. That's what this entire series of podcasts has been about. And frankly, that's what our Sunday um, Sunday 10 a.m. adult Bible studies are about. And that's what portions of our Wednesday night Bible study and prayer time is about. It's not about putting in time and checking off a list of, okay, I did the church thing today. It's about growing, growing in our knowledge and our understanding, not because it makes us more saved, because it doesn't do that, but because it makes us better equipped to be more used by God in his service for the causes of his kingdom. So let's look at this issue covenantal view and dispensational view. Will you please pray with me? Lord, as we consider these two viewpoints, these two lenses, give us a spirit of grace and faith and hope and recognizing that there are true born-again believers on both sides of this issue. As we better understand where the other side is coming from, may we extend grace to them in those moments in which we disagree about how the Holy Spirit worked, while together celebrating that the Holy Spirit worked and called us to faith and convicted us of our sin and that we responded and called out, saying, Lord, save me. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right. So, those two terms, covenant and dispensational. You might say, these big words you're always throwing out. Well, remember, both of them are more of a, a, a systematic way of trying to look at this, trying to understand how God has worked. Knowing that he has worked, knowing that nothing happens without him, even back to the very dawn of creation. So let's look at these two things. The, um, the covenant view... This is one that really came up um, as part of the Protestant Reformation. It is not completely, but typically it is aligned with a, a view called the Doctrines of Grace, which fall under the umbrella of the teaching of a man named John Calvin, who was one of the early reformers. There was Martin Luther in Germany, there was John Calvin in Switzerland, and his kind of half-partner Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland. Zwingli had a connection with that group called the Anabaptists that are 
not really our forefathers entirely, but more like our second or third cousins, you might say. But it's connected with that teaching of a high view of God's sovereignty and that everything comes from God. Sometimes it gets a little carried away and gets to the point where it gets over the edge. But we should understand what covenant theology is. What can we learn from it? Because most of us are not full-bore covenantalists. We don't realize that, but most of us don't completely go there. So let's take a look at covenant theology. You can tell I don't accept all aspects of it, uh, but I do think there is much to learn. So what is it? Well, maybe it isn't so much a theology as much as it's a oh, one commentary I'm looking at uses the word framework. Um, it's in contrast to the dispensational view that is popular in much of American evangelicalism, and, well, you may not realize that most Baptists were raised in dispensational theology. I'll talk about that in a minute. Covenant theology has a, a heavy root in um, some of the Puritans who came to early America. Its roots are in that Protestant Reformation. And the idea is that there are all these different covenants over the history of, of biblical teaching. There was a covenant of grace, a, a, blessed to, a, a promise to bless all the people of the world, the covenant made with Abraham. Okay? Then there was the covenant made with Moses and the covenant made to David. And then there was the new covenant, which we typically associate with the arrival of Christ. And then there was a covenant of redemption, and there was a covenant of works. These were all views in this understanding of covenantal theology. Part of that view is that there is a continuity between the old and the new covenants. The old covenant was with different aspects of Israel as a people, as a nation. And then in the new covenant... And that was where the debate really happens. That's where the big dividing line is. Those who have the covenant view, the covenantal view of things, believe that with the arrival of Christ, with the arrival of the Messiah, and with the rejection of Christ by the Jewish people at the time, that at that point, God was done with Israel as a people, and that the church replaced Israel. As I said, we don't fully accept that, but that's the basis of it. Sometimes people call that replacement theology. But there are some serious implications of the idea of the church replacing Israel. And one of them is that it, it nullifies the promise made to Abraham regarding the land in Israel, and we don't accept that. We think that God's promise to Abraham is still good, and that he is going to eventually fulfill that promise. But there are some other implications. For example, people who hold to the covenantal view, and very often you might say, who are these people? Well, they're going to come from Reformed churches, Christian Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, um, in some cases, congregational churches, even the conservative ones. 
as well as the more liberal ones, are going to hold to elements of this covenant theology. And when they believe that the church replaced Israel, and by the church I'm referring to the New Testament church, at that point, that creates a number of things in which, among other things, they will say that, well, that practice of circumcision has gone away, but it has to be replaced by something. And they will teach you that baptism replaced circumcision. Circumcision didn't save, baptism doesn't save. But it's something that's an expectation. And that is why Presbyterians and Christian Reformed churches and those, those divisions of Christianity will baptize infants. And I talked about that last week in our podcast. They don't baptize them to save them, but they baptize them as a sign of the covenant or a mark of the covenant. One of the other challenges that it creates is that it has a view that um, seems to teach, among other things, the idea that the fall into sin, it changed all of creation. We certainly agree with that. But what they will say is that the idea of male headship, of the man having a, an authority over the woman, and we've even talked about what that means and what it doesn't mean and all the abuses that have happened of it, that the idea of male headship, a covenantal theology person will tell you male headship is a product of the fall, that it wasn't part of original creation that they hold a view that we would call the egalitarian view, that men and women are equal, and we would say they're equal but distinct. Their roles are equal, but they are different, and they're separate, and God held Adam responsible. He gave Adam authority, and he held him responsible. They will say, no, that's after the fall. And before that, they were co-equal. And that's the reason why Presbyterian churches and other Reformed churches will ordain women and they will serve in pastoral roles. They hold the egalitarian view, it's called. We don't share that view, but they didn't make it up. Okay, They will tell you there is biblical basis for it, that all of the teachings regarding the role of women are post-fall. That's their rationale. So that's a, a consequence, you might say, of covenant theology. But by far the biggest one is this idea that the church replaces Israel. And when you do that, it creates a whole set of problems. So in an effort to try to solve those problems, along comes what's called dispensational theology. That's one really big word. Well, a dispensation is just a way of ordering things, of a system in which to understand it. The belief of dispensational theology is that there's a divine administration of a period of time. Each of them is a specific age that is given. It recognizes that God has given different ages over the span of his creation to order the affairs of the world. Now, you might say, where did this come from? Well, that's an interesting one because real hardcore dispensationalists say it came from the Bible, to which I would say, well, uh, not explicitly, no. Um, it certainly has basis within, but 
not so many proof texts. It's really traced back to the 1800s in Pennsylvania from a group called the Plymouth Brethren and a man named John Nelson Darby, who essentially claimed that the Holy Spirit had revealed this to him. In other words, in the matter of church history and in Christianity, it's a relatively new understanding, less than 300 years old. One of the one of the criticisms of dispensational theology is that some of the great theologians of history never had a chance to weigh in on it. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that they're infallible, but to me it does make me say, well, I'm not going to fully buy into that viewpoint either. Mr. Darby was not infallible, just as we don't think that the Pope is infallible. But in America in particular, in the 20th century, Baptists and other more broadly evangelicals, including all that fundamental movement of the 20th century, bought in, uh, largely speaking, lock, stock, and barrel into the dispensational theology view. And it has a number of principles that really guide it, but one of them manifests itself in the uh, phrase, the pre-tribulational rapture. And so that's probably why any of you that grew up in a Baptist church were taught the kinds of things that I'm about to describe. And if you ever had a Schofield reference Bible from the early 1900s, the Schofield reference Bible and all of those notes that were in there were um, heavily, heavily dispensational in their views. Largely speaking, it was the Schofield Bible. The Schofield King James Bible is really what it was that uh, brought about that acceptance of the dispensational view, especially within Baptists in America and especially within the fundamental Baptist movement. There are at least two reasons why dispensationalists have the view that they do, and one of them is the literal interpretation of the Bible. Um, they make allowances for symbols and figures of speech and things like that, of course, but they would say when the Bible speaks of a thousand-year millennial reign, they interpret it literally, whereas covenantalists interpret it symbolically. That's why the covenantalists tend to have a viewpoint of the end times that I've talked about this before. They are amillennial. They say there isn't a specific thousand-year millennium. And the reason why they say that is because the purpose of the millennium is no longer needed. What's the purpose of the millennium in the dispensational view? For God to deal with Israel. For God to deal with Israel separately than what he deals with the church. And that really is, the, is kind of the, the core issue. Dispensationalists believe that Israel is still Israel. And God will deal with Israel separately from what he deals with the church. And that's what that thousand year reign of Christ on the earth is all about. Covenantalists, covenantalists will say, no, God is done with Israel. That millennial reign is a symbolic reference. That thousand year reign is as if the passages are also, other passages say a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. They interpret it symbolically. So let's take a look at some of these dispensations, okay? 
This understanding of dispensational theology is that there was the age or the dispensation of innocence, the first two chapters of Genesis before the fall, and then the era of conscience, the dispensation of conscience, Genesis 3 through Genesis 8, then the dispensation of human government, Genesis 9 through 11, the dispensation of promise, Genesis 12 all the way up through Exodus 19, the dispensation of law, Exodus 20, all the way up through Acts chapter 2, and then the dispensation of grace, sometimes called the church age, from Acts 2 all the way up through the current time period, and then the millennial kingdom, which Revelation 20 speaks of. These dispensations are not paths to salvation, but they're the way in which God relates to man. Each dispensation includes a recognizable pattern of how God worked with people living in the dispensation. The, the pattern was, first there is responsibility, then there's failure, then there's judgment, and then there's grace that is given or grace is dispensed. If you wonder, what should we believe? Well, let me give you my belief. I am a soft dispensationalist not a hard dispensationalist. And part of the reason why is because I, I don't accept the covenantal view that Israel has been replaced by the church. But I also don't accept the dispensational view that the only possible way to understand the end times is that Christ's return will be a pre-tribulational rapture. I'm certainly hoping for that. But at the same time, no man knows the day, the time, and the hour. Jesus said, not even the angels. He said, not even him. And dispensationalism, particularly its more um, aggressive spokespeople, have always been trying to put dates on it. Give you an idea of who are dispensationalists. Most fundamental Baptists are dispensationalists. Many of the TV preachers today, whether they're fundamental or not, are dispensationalists, actually our friends who come from the Pentecostal traditions, including the Assemblies of God, like Mount Hope Church here, the Hope, as they've re re renamed themselves, typically hold to a dispensational view of, this, of the end times. And yet, our friends and relatives and neighbors who come from those covenantal views, Presbyterians, Christian Reformed churches, of which the only one in this area is the Friendship Church. They come from a different view of how God has functioned and how the Holy Spirit has functioned. Those who are saved in those churches are saved the same way that we are, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ because he paid the price and he paid it all. They have a different understanding of how it functions. It's important we not misrepresent them. And we have to remember that were it not for God's grace, we would be lost. If Jesus were not who he says he is, we would be lost and without hope. And so some of this is academic discussion, but some of this also helps us to better understand and relate to people in other branches of Christianity. What do I think is the best way for us to look at this? Um, I would suggest to us that we do need to take the stance that Israel and the church are separate.
that we are Gentiles, they are Jews, um, that God will deal with Israel separately during that thousand-year reign. Christ will return when he returns. We don't know when it will be. We're hoping it is before the tribulation. But it could also be during the tribulation, and there are even some very knowledgeable, sincere believers, including some tremendous biblical scholars who are Baptists, I might add, that will say, no, it's at the end of the tribulation. Christian believers will go through the tribulation, but will be protected during the tribulation. To let any of you get concerned about that, I would say don't. The only way that comes into play is if we're alive when the Great Tribulation comes. And people have been thinking that they were going to be alive during that easily for the last 2,000 years. <laughs> Some of the apostles thought that they were going to be alive during the Great Tribulation. Martin Luther thought he was going to be alive during the Great Tribulation. That was 500 years ago. It's only an issue if we're alive when that day comes, and chances are it's a little further off than we think it is. We have to be ready at any time, knowing that it may not be for quite some time. So I hope that gives you at least some idea of those different views. I think we should be soft dispensationalists, but our hope and our faith and our trust is in Christ and in Christ alone, who will come when he comes. And until that time, we need to be equipped. We need to be informed. We need to be willing. We need to be obedient. We need to be faithful, learning about him. And learning means learning about some viewpoints that we don't totally accept, but we don't want to misrepresent them because we sure don't like it when they misrepresent us. And somebody might say, well, but Jim, if we learn about them, some of their views will creep into us. Well, look at it this way. If their views can be reconciled with Scripture, maybe we can learn something from there. If they can't be reconciled with Scripture, or if some of our views can't be reconciled with Scripture, then we've got to deal with that. Don't love what you were taught more than what the Bible teaches. Because sometimes, even under the best of intentions, those two aren't absolutely aligned with one another. And that's really what this series has been all about. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do others believe what they believe? How can we best relate to them? And where those differences aren't reconcilable, how can we at least be respectful and civil about the differences? Because the body of Christ is probably broader than we tend to think it is. And we're going to be spending eternity with fellow believers who were covenantalists and who were Calvinists and who were Arminians. And we're going to be spending fellow believers with people who on this earth were Methodists or Presbyterians or Lutherans and some Episcopalians and, yes, some Roman Catholics and some people from the Reformed traditions. And yeah, there are going to be some Baptists there, but there are probably going to be people we expected to see there that aren't there because their faith was in something other than Christ. They, they said that they believed, but only God knows their heart. That's why it's so important to understand why we believe what we believe and that our eyes and our trust be on Christ much more than on our, our history and on what makes us comfortable and on what we were always taught. If we're going to say the Bible's our final authority, we need to mean it, 
and we need to live it. And that, my friends, is the final episode of this podcast, Why We Believe What We Believe. We'll begin a new series soon, but in the meantime, thank you for listening. I will make this series public now, and so it will be available to be listened to by anybody who's looking for it on YouTube. And may the Holy Spirit move mightily in the hearts of people to create a hunger to understand and to seek the truth, but to have the truth be based on what Scripture says and not on anything else. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Have a great week.